Welcome to Follow This Thread, Made in Xinjiang, a conversation with practitioners and scholars about the forced labor situation in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region and its connection to global supply chains. I'm Amy Lair, the Director and Senior Fellow at the Human Rights Initiative at CSIS. During this podcast, we'll focus on the issue of responsible sourcing, the human rights challenges that Xinjiang presents, including for global supply chains, and potential policy solutions. In this podcast, we've traveled to Xinjiang, shown you the human rights abuses being perpetrated there by the government, and demonstrated just how hard it is to assess firsthand whether companies that have production facilities in that area are using forced labor. Government surveillance is ubiquitous there, and the fear of reprisals have made it almost impossible to know for sure whether a workforce there is willing or not. So what's the solution? Some have proposed cutting China's cotton and textiles out of our supply chains. Is that even physically possible? In this final mini-series episode, we're going to examine the thread. The supply chain reaching across Xinjiang, across China, and across the world. So a friend of mine, Liz Muller, who's a supply chain expert, she calls it a cotton web, not a cotton supply chain, because of the movement of the materials at different stages of production. Like Bennett Freeman in her last episode, Patricia Jurowitz is a a co-founder of the Cotton Campaign. She's also the founder and vice president of the Responsible Sourcing Network. She's been focused on creating new systems for cotton supply chain traceability for the last few years. When it comes to following the thread of a cotton web, she is the person to talk to. So let's talk about the supply chain. The hard work of cotton picking was deeply interwoven with slavery in the U.S., and the terrible practice of forced labor and cotton picking lives on today in other countries. How about spinning and weaving? So my mental images are somewhat arcane. I think of the fairy tale about Rumpelstiltskin spinning straw into golden thread. And of course, there's Arachne in Greek mythology, whose weaving is so wondrous that it incurs the goddess Athena's wrath, with rather unfortunate ramifications for Arachne. But these images of artisanal production are wildly outdated. Today, yarn spinning and weaving are highly technical and require expensive, modern, gigantic industrial machines in factories across the globe. Perhaps the best way to think about this complex supply chain is actually to think about something quite simple, say a cotton t-shirt. You might be wearing one right now. Do you know where it's from? Its tag might say made in the US or made in China, but that's just the first step in a longer global story. So let's say that the cotton is grown in the United States. The US actually grows quite a bit of cotton and that cotton could be shipped to Bangladesh, for example, in Bangladesh, they could turn it into yarn or thread, and then those cones of yarn could be shipped to Vietnam, and Vietnam makes fabric, and then that fabric could be shipped back to Bangladesh and made into garment. So product does go back and forth across various borders before it ends up as a garment or sheets or towels that you and I would purchase. Okay, so made in the USA might not mean entirely made in the USA. How about made in China? Within China, if you look at where cotton's produced in China, I think it's around 84% of cotton from China is grown in Xinjiang. So if you look at that amount globally, 
It's around, I've heard 18 to 20% of all cotton in the world is coming from Xinjiang. So that cotton within China, it's not exported at all. So they're either then turning it into cotton or cotton yarn, fabric, garments uh, within Xinjiang, or maybe that cotton is transferred as bales of cotton to other parts of China where it's turned into yarn and then fabric. Maybe the yarn or fabric in Xinjiang is then shipped to other parts of China. With all this transiting within borders and across borders, and also with traders often selling cotton and thread as a commodity, it can get really hard to trace the supply chain. Is this a problem only with cheap, fast fashion? Surely luxury goods have easier traceability. And there was a huge expose a couple years ago of product being labeled as made in Egypt or made with Egyptian cotton. And it wasn't really. Those were false claims because Egypt doesn't grow that much cotton, yet you commonly see that label in stores saying made with Egyptian cotton. So if there's Chinese cotton yarn going to Egypt and then being turned into fabric and sheets or towels being labeled Egyptian cotton, some of it actually could be coming from China. Average consumers may expect that there's some database or some massive ledger in a company basement that gives orderly lists of what's coming from where. But in fact, these supply chains are tangled and complicated, even if you're the brand sitting at the end of them. So let's go back to that t-shirt. How do I find out where it came from? So brands write purchase orders to the company, which we frequently call a cut and sew manufacturer. So it's the company who's actually sewing the pair of jeans together, sewing the t-shirt together. Okay, so let's say the Acme brand orders from the cut and sew manufacturer Bravo Industries. Now we've deconstructed our t-shirt down to individual scraps and patterns. But who provides the fabrics? That company that's making that product They might be choosing the fabric or the brand likely is choosing the fabric for them and telling them what factory to buy it from. The brand doesn't typically buy the fabric. They're having the cut and sew manufacturer buy the fabric. So if an Acme executive wants to trace a product, it isn't simply a matter of marching into the basement of Acme Industries and looking through some files. They now have to investigate the Bravo cut and sew manufacturer and the fabric manufacturer. And where is the fabric manufacturer getting its yarn? The fabric manufacturer, if they're buying their own cotton, spinning their own yarn, it's all contained within the same facility, that textile mill. In some instances, that textile mill might be buying its cotton or it might be doing a combination. Maybe it's spinning some of its own, but it doesn't spin enough. So then it also buys it. That's where the brand typically tells me that it loses traceability to know who those spinners are because it's not asking that textile mill who the spinners are, but it definitely could. This level of detective work is really hard and is rarely carried out, but it's not actually impossible. In CSIS's November report on supply chain traceability, we do identify examples of companies that are really digging into their supply chains and are tracing all the way back to the cotton fields for at least some of their products. We can also add an extra level of traceability on cotton bales, although this hasn't been regularized across the world. The bales are tagged. And in fact, there's a global initiative 
to use a permanent bail ID number, which has already been implemented in the United States, Brazil, Australia, Israel, and all those bails do have tags on them, whether it's part of an international numbering system or whether it's part of a country's numbering system. The bails typically have numbers, lot numbers or batch numbers on them, which reflects the GIN number. And that means you could understand where the GIN is located, as well as something determining the classification or the quality of the cotton. So cotton bales have ID numbers on them and can be traced across borders in particular. So when products go back and forth between one country and another, they have documentation that goes along with the shipment, invoices, bills of lading, import permits. And you can look at all that paperwork to understand where the cotton originates or where the yarn originates or where the fabric originates. So we've talked about all these different levels of the supply chain, but actually we really haven't talked about the farm to gin piece of it. In my opinion, it's hardest to track the traceability between farm and gin if it's somewhere like India and you have millions of farmers to know exactly which farmer is taking their cotton to which gin. That could be a little difficult. But this too can be solved with a little bit of detective work. With really big farms, that are only taking it all to one gin, it's coming from one farm, that's quite easy to know because the farmers are within a certain radius of the gin. It's expensive to move cotton with the seeds in it and the seeds are removed at the gin level. So that's why you know the farmers are going to be within a certain radius of the gin. Once that cotton is ginned and baled and gets the bale ID number, it could be tracked all over the world. It's just that most brands have not been asking those questions. Most folks are not looking to really understand from which country their cotton is originating. So now we've gotten cotton gins creating cotton bales, spinners creating yarn, weavers creating fabric, cotton sew facilities creating shirts, leading up to an exclusive Acme branded t-shirt. But there are still pieces missing. This model is wildly simplified. There's often traders in between the different levels of the supply chain. And as a side note, when cotton doesn't cross borders in a bale, traceability gets harder. In China, Xinjiang's cotton doesn't cross borders before it's mixed with cotton from all over the world and turned into yarn and fabric. A lot of the cotton is being produced in Xinjiang, but then shipped to eastern China, where it is then spun or turned into fabric. That's where there's more opacity or not a clear understanding of where the cotton originates. The other aspect of that is that the Chinese government manages giant warehouses with all the cotton in it. And to really be able to trace the cotton within China, you need to have visibility to that warehouse and between the different entities and depending how willing the government will be to share that information, it may be difficult to understand if cotton, yarn, or fabric, or product in eastern China is being manufactured with cotton from Xinjiang or cotton from other parts of China. It will be difficult to really know that. This is really quite a labyrinth. How do we really know where our products are made and where they come from? For our last guest, Sharon Waxman, the answer lies with leadership. She says that for companies to implement successful solutions, 
the decision to really have a traceable, responsible supply chain has to come from the very top. You know, not everyone at a company headquarters will have the relationships with the, you know, the tier two suppliers and uh, authorized subcontractors. So that the idea is that it cascades through the supply chain and that you start with an agreement at the top about what the goal is, why it's important. You know, you need to make sure that everyone really is fully bought in and agrees that it's important. And then the process cascades. Sharon is the president of the Fair Labor Association, a multi-stakeholder body that helps companies, especially apparel companies, address labor abuses in their supply chains. The Fair Labor Association produced a book that companies can use to learn how to better trace their supply chains. We do have a tool and we have a whole toolkit to help companies kind of think this through. It's a like a 40-page document, which is available on our website, www.fla.org. And it walks through a 12-step process for a company to undergo in a very detailed way to set the goals for what product or commodity the company is hoping to trace, how to put a team together, how to identify the actors both inside the company and in the, in, in the supply chain and in the CSO, civil society community. Um, and then it goes through very methodically all of the different steps. Oh, we also have a set of six different tools associated with the overall strategy document and includes elements like you know, an action planning template, you know, the matrix for the stakeholders, the company profile, how to do a profile of the supplier, how to talk to your supplier when you're visiting them, and then the worker profiling um, matrix for subcontractors and tier two suppliers, and then deeper. Patricia also has a tool to help companies and consumers. The YES initiative, Yarn Ethically and Sustainably Sourced, which is the initiative that Responsible Sourcing Network, my organization, uh, designed a standard and assessment workbook to demonstrate that the yarn spinners are implementing their own processes for due diligence, have their own policies against cotton and inputs harvested with forced labor, and then the check of documentation, et cetera, to demonstrate that any cotton coming from high-risk regions has some sort of assurances built into it that it's not contributing to forced labor. My program at CSIS has also been digging into traceability tools for the apparel and footwear sectors. And you can see our November report to learn more about this topic. There are some exciting new tracing technologies that can at least partially assist. Isotope tracing and microbiome tracing both identify certain elements in the environment that can in turn tell you where cotton is grown or what factory yarn was produced in. DNA tag tracing enables the tagging of cotton or bales or yarn that can be scanned for at the end of the supply chain. DNA tag tracing isn't really usable on the ground in Xinjiang, since access to the region is limited, but the other technologies I named could provide important ways to verify that what a supplier says about their sourcing practices is actually true, that the cotton isn't from Xinjiang, for example. The YES program provides a potential collective platform to lessen the burden on brands seeking to trace their supply chains. But unfortunately, our research suggests that nothing can entirely replace the hard work of digging through the supply chain, tier by tier, to know where that t-shirt comes from. Our research also indicated that about 80% of China's textiles and apparel just stay in China. They're not exported, suggesting that global supply chains provide an important but potentially limited amount of leverage. 
many more actors really need to engage on Xinjiang for us to see real change there. And in fact, both Sharon and Patricia stress the importance of working together across industries and with the U.S. and other governments to put pressure on China to change. You know, the government really needs to understand that there are consequences for these kinds of egregious human rights abuses. You know, it also needs to come from all business. Bennett Freeman, who was in our last episode, says that... In Xinjiang, we need to deploy this economic pressure in the absence, at least in the short term, of diplomatic engagement, and then find ways to talk directly or indirectly with the Chinese government to end these abuses. Adrian believes in the role of Western governments, which need to... Assess the situation and then issue a formal public advisory to uh, the industries and the companies in their own country, which is exactly what the United States has done and the United Kingdom has done. Issue a, a clear worded warning about the situation in Xinjiang and about the implication in forced labor to supply chains. That's a very needful and helpful strategy, uh, especially to start out with. Then, of course, the United States, for example, has through customs and border protection, actually mechanisms to enforce and stop imports made with forced labor. Penelope Karitsis really points to multilateral institutions as part of the solution. There's definitely a role for the UN on this issue, and I would welcome the UN taking a stronger stance. I would welcome a UN rapporteur making a statement on this issue. I think that would send a very strong signal. We definitely need more UN voices on the matter as well. The question of how to make substantive progress in Xinjiang is almost as complex as apparel supply chains. This issue may seem enormous and is especially challenging because China is such an important global actor today. But multiple people and groups, from NGOs to the U.S. government, are thinking very deeply about this issue. We at CSIS also have been examining potential paths forward and will continue to do so, considering the full range of tools available to governments to affect the situation from restrictions on imports of goods, to sanctions, to diplomatic engagement. The situation in Xinjiang has really illuminated the vital need for greater supply chain transparency and traceability for the apparel and footwear sectors, and for that matter, for other sectors with their roots in the region. And then, of course, there's a need for those companies to act on what they learn and clean up their supply chains. But it's, I think, really urgent that other actors across many countries push together for policies in Xinjiang. Nuri Trakal, who was on our first podcast, grew up in the region and his family and friends were affected. He has one simple message to deliver. The ongoing forced labor practices in China is affecting everybody's life. The international community, consumers uh, cannot ignore this issue anymore. The international community should come together to address this modern day slavery. That should not have a place in our lives. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 